Welcome to the Spoiler Alert Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Krenz. My co-host and co-creator, Dakota Scott, is in the other window. And create, you know, oh. who who creates the creators though? Right? <laughs> we'll save that for a Prometheus episode. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, uh, but today what we're doing is 1990s Quigley Down Under. Now, this is not the most well-known of what of semi-modern westerns. Um but it is a 90s Western starring Tom Selleck and Alan Rickman. And I want to get the name of the actress because it's a little difficult to pronounce. Uh, and it's also starring Laura San Giacomo, who, I act, who was coming off of a success in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which I don't oh. know if you've seen that movie. But that's what she's known for, is a big thing. Okay. No, I've um, seen I've seen part of it, but not nearly enough to yeah. So not all the way through, certainly. Yeah, that that was uh, one of uh, Steven Soderbergh's. Wasn't that Steinberg's breakthrough film, right? And that it yeah. had uh, it had, yeah. yeah, it had Spader. It was one of, if not like the breakthrough for Steven Soderbergh. He like won the Palme d'Or for it. Uh, I thought that was his first film. It might have been. It, okay. it, it might have been. Like, Quigley Down Under begins with this cowboy from America shipping off west from California over to Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, it was just uh, Alan Rickman hires uh, uh, the best sharpshooter in the world, and uh, Quigley is, I guess, the man. Uh, every, I think Rickman says that every, uh, every other applicant sent in, um, you know, just a letter, but Quigley sends in a letter punctuated by bullet holes, uh, you know, closely. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that proves, because, you know, they could be close range, but whatever, I guess it made an impression, and that was, uh, you know, so. It's a resume builder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Some things happened before that, but ultimately he arrives at you know to Alan Rickman and, and he puts him to the test, you know, to, to, to make sure he's actually hired the right guy. But but yeah, it, it made an impression. So uh, yeah, and one of the things like this, like this movie kind of reminds me of it reminds me of like how a lot of pr- like average westerns would begin, where it's just like stranger comes into new town meets meets yeah. like meets attractive lady meets uh sketchy guy or sketchy gang of whatever mm-hmm. like so uh you know so that's kind of i guess like you know sort of a homage um uh like one of the first things we do is we meet uh Cor- we meet uh Cora Cora who is yep. crazy Cora she yeah. Uh, talk. She doesn't know Quigley. Quigley doesn't know her, and she immediately just starts calling him Roy and like, yeah, like stuff like that, and like pretending that they had had a marriage and had had a baby. The only thing I'd say, short b- before we get there, is I mean, yeah. So Cora. I mean, at first I, I didn't know if it was a ruse, like she's just trying to get out of the situation or something. But it becomes apparent that she's 
actually convince of whoever the fuck Roy is. This is who uh, Tom Selleck's character. Is. So, uh, but the other thing is um, Marston's men, uh, not the nicest people, but then it, it gets, he gets into a scuffle, I guess, with them. And then it turns out that, um, that they're, they're actually the people that are supposed to escort him to Marston's ranch. We don't know who Marston is or why we're going there or whatever at this point, but uh, but they're they're not nice, uh, and uh, you know mm -hmm. whatever they they're kind of trying to take advantage of Cora and whatever, and turns into this big brawl, and then they they realize that oh this is the guy we're supposed to take there, but it does say something about their character and by extension probably the character of Marston, you know so right. yeah so there's kind of some setup there it's not hugely important but you know, um, oh, but they they take a wagon ride they take a wagon ride through part of portion of the outback and stop by at marston's ranch who it's it's an alan rickman character and he's playing it up and he's so, you know, as soon as you evil. see him you know he's gonna be a villain he's gonna be, I, yeah, I mean, he's maybe that's i don't know at the time if you would think that because before that all he'd really done was die hard you say so this was you know his follow-up film but um but me you know knowing rickman is you just like you know he's gonna be the fucking villain so <laughs> you know but um, but maybe it's not as obvious at the time. I don't know. Um, yep. But yeah. And, and he right away puts him to the test. And this is one of my. This is one of I think the better scene. One of the better scenes of the movie is he tests out his shooting range, and he gets a guy to ride with a bucket and just tell me when you want him to stop. And it's just like he's just loading yeah. his gun, setting his sight. Not even some like serious gun porn in this movie, not even looking up. <laughs> um, and then he finally he finally tells uh, Rickman to call off the the guy setting up the bucket, and then yeah, he's not even looking. He's like, "Bob, there will do." Yeah, but, <laughs> and then he, he ends up sniping it like three times, and it's probably half a yep. mile away. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty far. Um, that that was a funny scene. That was a funny way yeah. to set up that character, kind of both characters too, because uh, Alan Rickman's character is constantly underestimating people. That's one thing that he that that's one of his fatal flaws. He out he underestimates Quigley a lot. Um, he doesn't really. One of my criticisms with the movie is he doesn't really have much of a dialogue or physical connection in any way with Cora that I can recall so that makes no. it a little not as interesting as it could be but he does but he also underestimates you know the aboriginal people it's, that he has like working for him for if if anything very little but it it look it it looks uh plantation slavery like when you get to his ranch. It's it's actually interesting that you you, you bring that up because now I'm just thinking that there's sort of a similarity between Cora and the way his mother dies that, that maybe he could have. Yeah, you know, at this point in the movie, Quigley seems kind of mistrusting of, or at least slow to trust Marston. Uh, Marston does kind of seem to treat his own ranchers poorly and then later on he has Quigley over for dinner 
and we realized that he treats the aboriginal people and the ab in general as well as the ad aboriginal people working for him like absolute dog shit like he proposes to he proposes to quigley that we're not hunting big game or anything here like we're hunting aboriginal people rickman kind of draws Selick in under false pretenses he says he's just there to shoot the wildlife um kind of lures the deserters early on i mean i think that's his first statement is with those deserters you know of like what kind of person he is so he kind of baits them into going for the weapons and then he blows them away at close range you know so i i think there's something there about luring people in up close and then i i'm probably really straining here he wants to shoot the aboriginals but they're not close enough for him to shoot that's why he needs a long range sharpshooter maybe there's some kind of character statement there i can't piece it together he's a bit cowardly like he he's yeah he doesn't want that's to get right. yeah. his own hands dirty basically yeah he would at rather first, his... yeah because then when quickly kicks his ass he's like i you know he goes in there and then the second time he's like okay go get him you know and it's sort of a similar thing at the end so yeah probably something i don't <laughs> Yeah, and I, maybe there's nothing to it. I don't know. <laughs> I I think it just kind of boils down to like he's used to having like you know a kill brought to him, and he might and, and like he would do it. Like he's just he he's a wealthy he's a wealthy man who was his backstory is we'll get in we'll just go, move in on some characters right now. We'll do Marston first. Oh. Why not? Uh. His background is, and he explains this that night um, where he has dinner with Quigley, uh, mm -hmm. he explains that his parents were murdered by the aboriginals. And or at least he, his mother. Was. Yeah, for sure his mother. I think he said his parents, both of them. Mm. Like Quigley is a movie that I think its heart is in the right place and it does a lot of things well. I thought yeah. the score was, like, was pretty damn good. Yeah, I even, like, I even looked it up. Yeah, Basil Polyduris or something, Polyduris. I, I, I haven't heard of him before, but, you know, some of the tracks are, you know, just average, but some are really, really good. So yeah. that stuck out to me. Yeah, like some, and I know what you mean, like some, it's just, some were like you were doing too much, you know what I mean? Where there were a couple yeah. scenes there where you did not need any score at all, or it should be very minimal. And it was just kind of like the, like the cliche kind of Western, like yeah. womp, womp, womp kind of music when it's like a yeah, you had some talking womp, scene womp, womp. and <laughs> someone has a snake in their boot or something like that kind yeah. of scene. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those musical notes are a little cliche, but the, the main theme, the main hero theme is pretty damn good. Um, and there's some other ones that are, yeah, surprisingly kind of nuanced. Like they really do actually bring the emotion out of a scene in sort of an unexpected way, you know, without it feeling forced in the way that some of the other tracks kind of are. The, the more action-y tracks can can feel a bit forced, but uh, the, the emotional cues are actually nuanced, which is, I think, really important and kind of helps those scenes because they're not always terribly subtle, but the soundtrack helps them out a lot, I think. So... Uh, yeah, I was really surprised by it. There's definitely some good tracks. So, yeah, what kind of boils down in the Quigley Marston like dinner, or in the Quigley Marston dinner is that uh, 
he explains Marston explains his backstory and says that hey you're here to help me kill the aboriginal people and then the next scene is you see him like you see flying up uh yeah alan rickman flying through the air out of the out of the uh out of the house and uh he he's like no one pushes me out of my house or no no one forces me out of my house and goes right back in and then punches right back so yeah that's another thing. It looks though. ridiculous and everything. It's very over the top. The way he flies out, you know, you don't even see Selleck, you know. Yeah. And it, you know, I I just wish that the that the Alan Rickman character wasn't just like the kind of pampered villain, you know what I mean? Right. Like I, I, don't know. I feel like Rickman can do more. I feel like Rickman can do more if it's uh if the villain were a little more intimidating, but really you're only intimidated by the villain's numbers. You know what I mean? Like by how much right. ranchers he has at his disposal and stuff to go fight for him. And then the standoff doesn't last long because like we said, he has a number of ranchers and the guy sneaks in behind and knocks Quigley out. It was the Aboriginal... Yeah. The Aboriginal uh, servant actually knocked out Quigley. Their servant, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's... From behind, yeah. But uh, he he flips the table. He just kind of kicks back with the bottle of like I think it's wine or whatever, and you know, and he's just getting he's just camping out, ready to take everybody on. And then surprisingly, the, the very person that you know, the whole reason is he's outraged at the prospect of murdering the indigenous, you know, the Aboriginals and. Uh, and it turns out to be the Aboriginal that blocks him over the head and, you know, and uh, turns him over to Alan Rickman's character. So, um, but yeah, I thought there was going to be this big shootout that, that doesn't happen. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I actually really liked it. I like it was the, the first thing that I think I really liked about the movie was that it didn't drag out that conflict. Like you didn't watch Quigley watch Rickman's cruelty over an extended period of time before he goes, Oh, I just can't take it anymore. Like they just cut to the chase. He's like, this is, they're so fundamentally different. And the, you know, that, that it just wastes absolutely no time. Like the second Rickman, you know, basically confesses that, yeah, I lured you out here under false pretenses. You're not here to shoot, you know, animals. You're here to shoot the aboriginals. You know, then just it, it like cuts to him flying out the window and, and then this whole, it all erupts into, yeah. So I actually did like that. That just wastes no time, you know, in getting to the central conflict of the film, you know, cause you know how that's going to play out. So they, they just don't bother even doing it. You know, they're just like, you know, there's, they're going to clash because they're fundamentally different. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, would be very hero like to gradually, you know, shoot aboriginals and then just be like, oh, you know, I just my heart's not in it anymore. This yeah, is just, yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's not like a slow pull towards. <laughs> no, like, you know what no, I mean. It's immediate. Yeah. yeah so he has a very hard line in the sand there, but. Yeah, and they kind of explain a little bit of what he saw in America there because he saw a little bit about the Native American population. Mm-hmm. I that that was, that was loosely mentioned. And yeah, it, it, you can infer enough that he's sympathetic to the the plight of you know the natives in America, but it's it, I mean it's not explicitly stated, but it is by you know Rickman being cast out of the you know out of his own home through the glass uh, door. But 
Um, yeah, so, but they, they do draw that comparison, which is a fairly obvious one, but yeah. But they're in this wagon, they're being drugged out into the middle of the outback, and they're going to be, uh, uh, hit, Quigley and Cora are going to be abandoned there to die. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the water bucket scene again, where he has to, because he, he stabs one, oh yeah, he stabs one of his, uh, I guess attempted murderers that's going to go set set them out in the middle of the desert. He stabs one of them and then grabs his gun and then the other one is just hightailing it back to the ranch and like they need he needs to kill that guy otherwise they're either going to be caught or they're not going to be able to get to the wagon and get water which well, well, not quite, the whole thing. It's kind of like Quantum of Solace, where like the the whole or um or maybe Good, Bad, and the Ugly would be better. Just I, at least he gives them a Tuco a chance, and Good, Bad, and the Ugly. But but Rickman orders them brought out so far into the desert by wagon that they can't possibly walk back the civilization. You know, so they're gonna you know the whole idea is to let the desert kill them. But uh, so and Quigley's beat to shit. So is the woman Cora, um and. Uh, he lures, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, so when, when, uh, when he first arrives, he said part of the, the deal was, you know, you give me 50 gold coins or something like that, you know, to Rickman, and Rickman gives him that, and then in front of all of the, the henchmen or whatever, and so Quigley half, you know, beaten half to death or whatever, you know, it's like, you forgot the gold, and that lures uh, one of the henchmen over to him, and he had like a boot knife or something on him, and, and you know, uh, and so once he gets in close, he stabs him and then, oh yeah, for whatever reason, the henchman brings the rifle, Quigley's rifle, oh, you know, genius right move, I guess, but uh, I don't know, maybe that's all he had. Uh, and uh, so then Quigley, beat to hell, tries to line up the shot on the, actually the other henchman's quite intelligent because he's like, fuck this, you know, he, he tries to get <laughs> out of there. So he doesn't go for the gold or try to overpower Quigley. He's just like, screw this. Doesn't try to help his buddy, just, you know, so, um, which I actually thought was quite good. But yeah, then Quigley struggles to line up the shot, get the, the bullet in, you know, it becomes this tense moment because it's not explicitly stated, but you as the audience kind of recognize that if he can't, shoot this dude and get a hold of those horses in that wagon they're fucked so um so he has to line up that shot he used as the corpse of the one dude you just stabbed to stabilize and uh that's another thing i mean he's, he's factoring in the wind and i think he's looking at the reeds and the way they're blowing so it's it's really tense and i almost didn't think he was going to do it but you know so but yeah he lines up the shot shoots the guy it's it's his first headshot in a pg-13 it's hard to work around a headshot but shoots him in the head the second one Actually, I feel like a kid talking about this, but there's one later <laughs> in the film where it's like freaking right point Blake. I'm like, oh, like, ooh, they got away with that. So, but you know, it, it, it actually is pretty exciting. And, you know, and, and yeah, so he shoots them. But of course the horses keep running, so they have to catch up to them, but at least- And they never actually point. get back to the wagon though. So that kind of sap- Actually they didn't, did they? Shit, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so it's all so pointless. That, <laughs> that retroactively saps some drama out of that scene but well, when you're watching because he rides off or that's after the aboriginals are yeah they get they get the saved cat. yep and yeah okay so and shortly after horse. they're not they're not doing well like no. and they're not you know there's not a ton of dialogue here because they're literally just walking through the desert trying not to yeah. die 
and then, yeah, it's like Eastwood and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where it's just the the yeah, you know, yep. yeah, and, you've seen that scene play out a lot. Yeah, and they both end up collapsing. Like he tries carrying her and gets like about ten. Feet. Does he? Because that's why I was just trying to remember. I, I remember him taking his bandolier off of her, does, which yeah, that, yeah. it almost looked like he's going to walk on. Or does yeah. he actually? He help he her? he almost just like took her shit <laughs> and then walked <laughs> away. But then he was like, "Fuck." And like, oh, okay. and like turned around and like picked her up, but he only lasted like 10, like 10, 10 paces feet. or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, they wake up and they're like in this, in this Aboriginal and camp, like this Abor- Aboriginal camp and they're performing like kind of religious practices on them. Uh, sort of like medicine man type of stuff. Not yeah. sure how accurate all of it is. Uh, so I can't really criticize from that point of view. Well, you can see that they're real aboriginals. I mean, I don't. That doesn't necessarily mean they're being completely accurate. But I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they have some kind of cultural advisor. But they and, smear kangaroo shit on his forehead. That's something that yeah. But, uh, yep. And as as they revive them, they do like treat you. They do like show them how to survive out in the outback on their own. So like one of the oh, things yeah, that probably that. is directly from aboriginal history and stuff is like finding a way to like take like a straw like a big like kind of like small tree or reed or something down into the ground and suck water from there if you're like in a certain area yeah it was interesting so yeah they kind of just show them the ropes and like uh quigley shows them how to and this is funny i was watching mythbusters and mythbusters explained that because they're doing the indiana jones i was i was binge watching mythbusters on hulu and they're doing the indiana they're doing a bunch of indiana jones ones so they wanted to make a whip and uh one of the mythbusters is like i fucking love making whips like it's crazy and he's like this is exactly how you do it (laughs) and and basically oh, they show that i don't remember that so they, they there was a scene where he makes a whip in that or uh, in it's it's actually like a rope but they use kangaroo hide and kangaroo oh. hide is what is used in the best whips so huh that so like and he laced it the same way that you would lace to you would lace a whip but he was just making oh, like a like a cattle roper uh yeah yeah a lasso or something yeah lasso right? yeah lasso yeah but yeah, so like, you know, there was that nice scene and it's kind of like, you know, really like gets the audience used to like, hey, you know, the Aboriginal people aren't assholes um, kind of thing. Yeah. And then uh, so at this point in the movie, they Cora explains her backstory and in her backstory, one of the fucked up things is, is she was married to this guy named Roy and Roy was out. Mm-hmm doing something during i don't i don't know where he was but she was home alone with a baby and then there was native americans outside i think they said it was either comanche and to hide and protect and like try to hide herself from like the comanche natives uh, she ends up like holding the baby's mouth shut to the point where it smothers the baby and right. that's why she's traumatized. That's why she's crazy Cora. She, you know, kind of has multiple personalities. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because she goes back and forth between being, you know, sort of uh, 
aware, you know, sometimes and then other times she's completely delusional. And I think it kind of stems from that she can't face the reality of, uh, I mean, I kind of knew where it was going to go as soon as she said, I put the hand over my hand over the beams. I'm like, okay, I know where this is going to go. But, um, but I mean, also the rest of the film takes a darker turn, I think, after that point, because there's sort of this over the top element uh, earlier on, you know, like, like Alan Rickman being thrown out the window. It kind of disappears after mm -hmm. that point. It becomes a little more grounded and a little more realistic. So I thought that was kind of, I maybe, I mean, did you feel that way or like, like it was a little, like there's sort of a tonal shift from, uh, or there maybe are, maybe, There maybe are a few sense. tone shifts. Like you don't know how, how, I guess how kind of genocidally depressing it's going to be because you see in like numerous scenes, like from act two to three of, of like uh, the rancher of Marston's ranchers cha literally chasing Aboriginal people off of a cliff. Over, like yeah, where, it, where it's disturbing. like, where it's like borderline, like, yeah, disturbing, you know, not, 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 not the quality of Schindler's List, but Schindler's List level of like evil yeah. is happening, you know, at least in like a smaller portion. It takes you from like kind of like happy sort of jokes of like sex jokes with Cora and Quigley and yeah, kind yeah. of sort of you know your basic I mean, they're, they're, they're not they're not too bad for the record because to, to some people maybe that'd be off-putting they're not right. like really no, dirty but, jokes but or anything. It, it is your basic like it is your basic kind of uh you know western filler comedy you know comedy relief yeah and then it's like a scene that's from a like it's from just a like a like a terrible like genocide scene <laughs> and then and then it yeah, goes yes, there back is. to triumphant. Right. So it does kind of push and pull you throughout a little bit. So I, well, I see and, what and, you're and, saying there. Well, yeah, and you're right. I mean, there's some, it does kind of just tug back and forth throughout. But I, I to me, it felt like there was a very clear halfway point. And it's kind of a, at the point where, where Cora uh, actually kind of clues you into just what drove her to being so crazy. And then I feel like, after that point, it becomes a bit more serious after, as opposed to some of the more over the top stuff that occurs earlier on in the film. Maybe that's just my person. I don't know. Maybe, uh, but that's how I felt kind of about it. Um, she, okay, so yeah, her whole backstory is like, I think you described that she accidentally ends up smothering the baby because Comanche had come in. And the problem is, it's the Comanche. And I, I don't know, most people, maybe they don't give a shit. I, I, I tend to be a student of humanitarian atrocities. So when you start to talk about the, the Comanche, she describes them as like, oh, they were just drunk. They didn't want to hurt anybody. The Comanche did some of the sickest, most evil, cruel shit. And so this is where we get into controversial territory because it's, to me, it was truly distracting because it's like, I don't want to be wrong here. From my understanding, they didn't even really have a culture as opposed like all the other Native Americans hated them. They were just marauders. They like they, they their whole culture was based around this, like looting, pillaging, and murdering. And you know there wasn't much. Else. They would accept like uh, runaway criminals, you know, bandits, white white people into their ranks. They didn't give a fuck. They were just like, because I mean, like you know, they were just essentially bandits. And so to take the Comanche, who are just some of the cruelest motherfuckers in history 
it'd be like, oh, they just were drunk. They didn't mean no harm, you know, like, and, you know, and so she had smothered the baby for nothing. It's like, if you used any other tribe, it would have worked. But for me, it really stood out. That was the Comanche. I mean, as I first became, I, I read. Oh, I thought that they just didn't. I thought that they, that she hid successfully, but killed her baby. No, no, they found her. They found her. And then just like, they're like, ha, ha, ha. And like walked away because they're just happy and drunk. No biggie. Oh, look at the mm. silly white woman hiding with her dead baby. Huh? And, you know, like, and they, they waltzed <laughs> off. And so she had smothered her baby for nothing. And so that was really, to me, I just, I think it was a, a little bit of lack of uh, probably research. And if they had just any other tribe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's more to the Comanche, but everything I know is just their whole if you could even call it a culture is based around their, you know, the looting and the pillaging and the plundering. They let anybody into their ranks, essentially white, you know, it didn't matter. It, it, it so they're basically just no like raiders, nomadic raiders, marauders. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so that was, uh, I, I regionally from what I, and this is so many years back. So I, I always worry about, I'm getting things wrong. I know these are kind of culturally sensitive, but, but obviously what we did is what manifest destiny and that's all well known. So I, but with the Comanche, it's so extreme, just some of the worst shit you can imagine that it really did distract me, especially because it's really the crux of her whole arc, you know, going forward, you know, yeah. that this was all for nothing. And, and so maybe people wouldn't care, but probably say that of any other tribe and make it work. But the Comanche were sadistic as hell. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, one thing that I wanted, or one thing that I, one of the bigger points that I wanted to make was that Korra doesn't seem vengeful towards, you know, indigenous people. She was always like kind of like warm and uh, they end up, you know, kind of for a short period of time adopting a baby because when they chased, when they chased, uh, the aboriginal people off the cliff the only thing that li that lived was like this little baby so she, yeah they, was... so they i like that they set that up a little earlier uh you know i yeah i i they set it up earlier where she's looking at it and she's like oh she's so cute i just thought that might just be like a one-off moment where she's you know showing that she's thinking about her own baby but later on, there's, it becomes, a, I'm really glad it becomes a redemption arc for her because the baby's the only one to survive this sort of, this massacre that we see. Uh, and, and through that, she gets to kind of redeem herself. I, I, I thought it was gonna kind of maybe be like the John Ford movie, you know, the three Godfathers where like you have this fucked up family unit, you know, and it, it doesn't really, I mean, happen like that. You know, Tom Selleck goes off and she's, it really just focuses on her redeeming herself through protecting the baby, you know, and, and, um, but I like that. I, I like that it, it, you know, it, she got that redemption arc. It was kind of. Quigley was away going into town to get, you know, pro yeah. uh, provisions and a bunch of dingoes were trying to get into the cave dwelling that they're hanging out in. And then yeah. for, hot second she had her hand over the mouth again and was like oh the baby's crying and yeah and then she's like and cry all you want 
We're going to make all the noise. I might not leave her alone with the baby. You know what I mean? She's obviously quite mentally unstable. And I'm like, maybe this isn't the greatest idea in the world. Like, maybe she's going to replay her trauma independent of any threat. (laughs) Independent of any threat. And I remember that's that's when one of the music cues was uh, pretty damn good as well. Uh, uh, But yeah, I just find it interesting that they play the differences between Korra and Marston. Because Marston has good reason to be angry well uh, at at those at the specific like tribe that like killed his parents or whatever you know what i mean you can always argue same as any i mean this is kind of the conflict that you have as same as in america that you have these settlers these 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 pilgrims or whatever that you know they just want to live out their lives they just want to set something up and then i mean so that conflict blood for blood and whatever so i mean Obviously, the English are here, they're colonizing, and so on that level, you know, you could say, you know, they're just asking for it, but that's, I think, obviously, very much an oversimplification. You know, I don't think, I don't think you're just going to reconcile the death of your mother because it's like, well, you know, we shouldn't have been here in the first place. You know, I'm just going to, we're going to pack up and leave and, you know, they, they killed my mother, but I can see we were in the wrong. I mean, it's so, you, you know, you can see where his resentment would manifest from. I I think it's way too easy to just be like, you know, well, you shouldn't have been there in the first place. It's like, you know, he's obviously as a character, not going to feel that way, you know? So his, you know, but yeah, now he wants to just kill them all, you know? Yeah. And I think that was a really interesting idea. It's not really explored. It's set up and then they don't really take it beyond that, you know? Well, I, I think just the comparison between Cora and Marston is interesting because he has a reason, they both have reasons to be like vengeful to some degree, but, but she internalizes it and blames herself. It doesn't quite work because he doesn't really have a reason to blame himself. Other than, I guess, we shouldn't be here in the first place. But, well, you know. Well, well, I mean, I don't know if it's so easy as she blames herself. But, like, she also, she's able to not, like, group a bad group of people together with the entire population of that people you know what i mean but see that's where the problem the whole thing with the kamachi and 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 like like i said it's it it all comes in because it was all unnecessary they didn't do anything they were just drunk they they come across her she's hiding and she smothered her baby and they find her anyway and they're just like oh and then they like walk off you know and like just leave like i mean yeah i think that's one of the problems with the movie is that because I mean, just watching the movie this time, I thought, I I legitimately thought that they had just, you know, not well, that she heard her, that they had not yeah. heard her and had gone their separate ways. Or no, whatever. she says she was discovered and they just laughed and walked off because they were drunk. They didn't, and she says, but she says it like, they didn't want to hurt nobody. And that was the thing where I'm like, okay, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, like, because they didn't pass up a fucking opportunity to hurt somebody like they relish that shit from every historical account i mean i know that to some degree those are going to be slanted but too much corroborate i mean it's yeah that like that shit happened you know so um i mean i know there's sort of the the demonization of the the natives obviously during that period to justify manifest destiny but by all accounts the Kamachi were beyond cruel and were absolutely, they wanted to make it known. Yeah. yeah so other Native American tribes like 
were like the fucking Kamachi suck. Because I figured like, you know, Korra has every has the same amount of reason to be angry at indigenous people as Marston does, right? But she just goes at it differently. She like understands like, you know, people are individuals and whatever, sure. you know, love, all that stuff like conquers all. And then yeah. and then, you know, Marston just doesn't want to think that well, he's that actually, think that they're at the she, same level. Actually when she shoots the dingoes she says, I got them Kamachi, right? I got them, you know, like when when uh, when Tom Selleck says, that kind of fucks with that actually. No, I get where you're going with it. I was like, actually that really works. And I'm just trying to, it doesn't, it's so close to lining up, but it doesn't quite that, because- it, That's how it, I feel um, about a, a few things in this movie, like- Yeah, it's frustrating. Like it's, it's close to being pretty damn good, but it settles for like, kind of like fine to good you know what i mean right like it kind of trips over itself in some spots but it's overall a pretty respectable film um yeah you know, it's, I... it's hard is in the right place uh it just yeah i <laughs> i feel like it just doesn't delve into the details and i mean we really haven't done much of a character analysis of quigley and that's yeah, that's he's... because like he's kind of just wallpaper, but like I don't know if that's more Selic or if that's more just the genre. No, it's it's definitely a genre thing. I well, so I I don't like to do anecdotal stuff or whatever, but like if anybody could be an expert on the cliches of the fucking genre. So again, my my grandfather loved fucking westerns, and as a kid, well the westerns got to watch so fucking many that you just become so familiar with the tropes of the genre that i couldn't stomach a fucking western for the longest time i just couldn't fucking take it except the sergi leone movies the good the bad and the ugly yeah the, the 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 man with no name trilogy was the one exception that always stood out i love those movies even after being western the fuck out my whole childhood took forever for me to come back to the genre I actually really enjoy it now, uh, especially a lot of neo-westerns were got me because they're a lot more reminiscent of the Sergio Leone movies. And 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 then after watching a lot of the neo-westerns, which tend to be, you know, like, like, well, I guess you could almost say that started with the Wild Bunch, which you'd brought up in a previous, one of our previous yep. recordings, where, you know, the more violent and cynical takes on the genre, um, which I still, under my grandfather, is I exposed to some of, I guess, like uh, the outlaw Josie Wales. And, and really, the Wild, Wild Bunch was like a thumb in the face to Westerns in a, in a way. Yeah. It's like, because, I mean, there's plenty of good Westerns that hit the, mm -hmm. that, you know, are cliche or whatever. There are yeah. plenty of them that are good, that are still cliche. Right. But, but I got them like, back to back to back, which is, I think, what soured my taste for but, it. So I didn't watch The Wild Bunch till much later in my life, and it made me kind of retroactively appreciate the, you know, High Noon and and, and uh, Shane and, you know, some yeah, of the more... Yeah, those are my favorite. Like, high, it's it's like High Noon, Shane, mm -hmm. uh, The Wild Bunch are probably my three favorite. But top. at the time, I fucking hated those because they were so cliche to me because I'd seen those tropes play out. I know they originate oh, so, with Shane. Yeah, you and know, well, well, and with but, High Noon though, he's like the outsider. Like that's the thing. Like he actually yeah. has the black hat. Like the good, mm -hmm. like the good guy wears the black hat. Like so that that one kind of flipped on its head. Uh, well, yeah, it's almost the start of kind of 
I mean, yeah, because when was that? I mean, High Noon? That was, High Noon had a lot of, like, anti-McCarthyism, too, to it, because, like, there was the kind of, you know, the witch hunting of, Mm -hmm. like, communism in in that time frame, and that's kind of what that was saying, like, putting the middle finger up to. So what the Wild Bunch kind of does, it puts a thumb in the face to Westerns and, and is like, oh yeah, you remember when that movie that John Wayne killed like 25 people in and you didn't see a drop of blood or a drop yeah. of like just, and it just didn't look evil. It was just like too triumphant. Right. Like it didn't look complex. Well, here you go. All our friends are just like, like there's mini guns. <laughs> like it's... It, all right. Uh, yeah, the big shootout. He come. He, he goes to a German household for. Are uh, they? Klaus is the name of the son. I don't know the name of the whole family, but um, I think it was Klaus, right? The son's. Mm-hmm. It's just like okay. You don't know the family's name, but they they take him in. They know that there's a bounty out on him, you know, because Rickman's character kind of runs things around there, short of the English uh, army or whatever, you know. I guess. Uh, you know, he has a lot of influence in the region. Yeah, so the German family takes him in, knowing that there's a bounty on him. They they treat him like one of their own, and then all hell breaks loose because Rickman sends people to get Quigley, and the house burns down. The Ultimately, there's a big shootout. Uh, the mother gets shot, and uh, the husband's obviously very devastated. The child's devastated. They don't necessarily blame Quigley, but... Uh, it's just, it's very un- unfortunate. Quigley lets one of them get away. But like when like the mo- when the mo- like the mother dies and all that, I think that was like one of the last straw that broke the camel's back where Quigley's like, yeah, I'm going to kill all these people. <laughs> and- well, he does. He lets the one guy go, but yeah, but you, you get, which is still, actually, no, you know what? He keeps doing that. It seems to be his thing. He, he never breaks loose of being a hero. Even he's because later on he's got those two dudes at gunpoint. He does blow the one away, but only once he's armed. He brings a dress over to Cora, and they've been more flirtatious and growing like closer together. Um, some of that writing I don't. Up. Some of that writing I don't love, so it just doesn't. I didn't. Bounce off I, there's definitely been worse. I didn't think it was. You know, I, I think it I think it worked for what this movie overall is. Like mm-hmm. it, you know, you, you could definitely do worse. It's um but again, there's sort of I think the only reason it maybe it would be fine if it felt cheesy, you know, like it does, but I think what gets in the way of it is some of the tone of the rest of the movie gets really dark. So those cheesy yeah. over the top things kind of yeah, undermine it and, mm-hmm. and there's a total clash, maybe, you know. So yeah. I, I agree there. in the light, more lighthearted version of Quigley, which dominates a lot of the movie, but then it gets dark and those things undermine the darker elements. So there's, I felt like there was sort of a tonal tug of war, but I think there's a clear halfway point where it, it becomes, a, you know, a lot darker in the latter half. And so those, yeah, I, the sort of sexual dialogue maybe uh, feels out of place. Maybe it would have worked better earlier on, you know, than later on. Yeah, after I, her whole backstory, you know, kind of. Yeah, it's it's just tough because uh, Laura uh, Sangia Sangia Como, like she does a pretty good jo- damn good job throughout. 
but it's it's just we have like the opener where she's crazy and you know kind of like we don't really know where her character's going and that and like yeah it's, yeah it's not a super welcoming character it's kind of it's kind of creepy you don't know if she's going to be a villain in some weird way or well or what, what like at least initially that's the thing. I mean, the way the movie presents it, you don't, I mean, you don't really take her as any kind of threat, but then like when you think of like the reality of the situation, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> might yeah. get a little weird. But I mean, the movie's tone kind of always makes her seem harmless, you know, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, I get what you're saying where it's like, okay, reality, which sometimes the movie wants you to swallow some reality, you know, like when it gets darker. So it's, that's where I mean about the kind of tonal tug of war, where it's like, I don't know if I should take it as over the top right now, or if I should really kind of take it as a more somber moment, you know, I mean, you know when, but you know what I mean? mean. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, there's like a shootout with like three of them, right? Like three of them go and find them in the cave and then they chase him out and then like when he like leaves that one guy to go like kill himself and he's oh, like that was early so yeah that's what i wanted to bring up just because i thought it was one of the sort of better moments of the i mean it was during the aboriginal massacre so that guy was a part of it and so there was certainly this tension of after all that this dude just did and we watched transpire like you could certainly see quickly just and i mean obviously the movie's gotten pretty dark at this point so you could see quickly leaving him for dead and you really don't know what he's going to do so this guy's broken his back you see him fall uh as the aboriginals did that he led over the cliff um and his gun is like right there but because it's, I'm a little confused. I mean, he must have broken his back lower, so he just can't, because he has the use of his arm still. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's just, his gun is just out of reach. Um, and so quickly, you know, he's like, you know, basically, it's, I mean, it's kind of hardcore. He's like, you know, kill me, <laughs> you know, and quickly he's like, I mean, it's not quite like that, but that's what he's at, you know. It's like, finish me off. And quickly he's like, well, I could do that, but then, you know, tell me where Alan Rickman is and, you know, the position of his man and, and everything there. And, you know, the guy's like, well, what assurances do I have that you'll kill me, you know, that you'll honor your word and kill me? And like, basically none. And quickly he's like, well, I wonder what'll get you your first, you know, the dingoes or the fucking ants, which is really hardcore thought. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, you know, but like, it, you know, it's hardcore. He starts to saddle up, you know, so I think he half fucking means it because you just watch this guy participate in this massacre here, you know, and you can see him rationalizing like, fuck it, you know, sleep in the bed you made, motherfucker. <laughs> and, you know, so um, and so what actually does end up happening is interesting. It's, um, you know, he says, if you know, I, I forget exactly what leads up to it, but it's kind of a good line, you know, it's like, well, if you don't tell me, I'll let you live. You know, which is worse than, but yeah, it's like, that's a good line. Um, but uh, he does, as quickly as he's about to saddle up and take off, he tells him the position of, of Rickman and his men. And then uh, Quigley hands him his revolver and he's like, you know, you know, he puts it in, in Quigley's face. You know, he's like, you got one shot, make it count. <laughs> and so it's this dirty, hairy thing, basically. It's like, it, like that's ballsy, but it was, well, you know. It- it's one of those things where it seems like super gutsy, but he also knows that, like, right? You well, know, he's what got I mean? some There's fucking no other way. Man. Like, I don't. But, 
I don't think but, you can underestimate. Like, okay, I'm a vengeful asshole. Okay, I mean, I might cut my nose off to spite my face. Like, he's got some fucking nads. When this dude put the gun in his fucking face like that, you know. But so that was a good fucking scene. I actually yeah. thought like that was tense. I didn't know which way it was gonna go. I, I did. I mean, I'm sure Quigley's not gonna get shot. So I guess well, I knew well, that was gonna well, happen. I mean, I mean, like that's just like the the funny thing about one of the, about that specific situation is because Quigley has all the cards where it's like, yeah, it's like okay, if you kill me you're dooming yourself to die by like dingoes and ants yeah so i okay. know for a fact that you will not kill me so long as there's only one bullet in this revolver yeah well he's he's certainly hedging everything on that and the guy's i suppose he's getting a feel for it. He's, he's probably a coward you know he's asking me to kill him and everything in the first place it's like okay yes yeah, so he's probably not gonna do it but i'm just thinking i mean you can't underestimate the power of hatred. There is, I, I, we know because it's a movie that Quigley can't die, but people are irrational. You could take that fucking bullet, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, That's true. So, but, but of course, because it's a movie, yeah, okay. So I guess I, I, the suspense is sort of cut short because it's like, well, Quigley's not gonna, actually, no, you know, you could have it where like the dude fucking shoots Quigley. He's more, you know, he's wounded. The woman takes, you know, patches him up in a much darker movie. And then the guy's left to sleep in the bed he made and be eaten by dingoes and fucking fire ads or whatever the fuck. Like, that'd be fucking hardcore. But, you know, that'd be a great subversion where it's like, oh, there's no way he's going to shoot him. Maybe he fucking actually does. Quickly survives, but... But, yeah, so, so then we get into the final shootout, the final uh, gunfight. So there's a lot of booby traps in this final shootout, right? There's a swinging log that gets somebody, or like a, a, a log that swings and pulls up a string and de like demounts a couple of guys. Um, right. But in the first portion of the shootout, though, he still doesn't kill that many people. He kills probably two or three. And he always like has like the Batman complex where he's like, I don't want to kill someone that is unarmed. Like if someone's surrendering, he'll even if he right. even if he thinks they're full of shit, he'll take them for their word. And then as soon as they start to go go for a gun again, right. then they'll blow them away. Like okay, so the dude fakes him out, right? Like mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like, why don't you fucking kill this guy? So you remember because like he so he's like, all right. I'm putting my arms down. Or I mean, he doesn't say it like that, but whatever. And he tosses it to the dude in front, which actually was kind of, I haven't seen that done in the last <laughs> And then the guy's like, you know, and quickly blows him fucking away. But then the guy who tossed him the gun, he lets him live. And I'm like, why? I know. That's a good, that's a great <laughs> point. Could you imagine having been the guy that caught the gun that wasn't expecting it and was just like, oh, I guess well, I'll actually, shoot. that guy was really smart. It's a shame to have blown his brains all over the place because that one, that guy actually had some. You know, like mm -hmm. imagine his reaction time. That was good. But that that ties in together with my earlier statement of the PG-13 thing. This dude gets shot in the fucking face. We see the pink mist. It's graphic for PG-13. If this movie like had... he gets fucking it's a split second thing, but yeah. If this movie had like the guts to like go full R. 
it might lean a little more into the massacres and kind of you could see a total tone shift where like it doesn't have to like appease to an audience with the kind of you know with the with the cliche comedy bits in there yeah yeah actually and you know it might be a stronger movie for it but it maybe something would be lost i mean is is as much I, as those two elements don't work together, I feel like it's almost there where maybe the, the sense of classical so western would be lost. Yeah, yeah, um, it, 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 it's yeah. Actually, that's interesting. So it's it's really a bizarre combination of classical western and neo western. I think yeah. actually, it's right? it's got a little bit of Unforgiven in it. Not not right. at that quality, but at at that well, level of darkness. And no. then it's got like, like it, it's got like the gun smoke shit, like the gun smoke, like, oh, you know, yeah. TV series yeah, where it's I, just kind of like. As a kid, you know how long that went on. Okay. That that's almost a certain kind of trauma to have to watch episode after episode <laughs> of fucking gun smoke. Yeah. So like, I mean, who do you think has seen every fucking episode of fucking gun smoke? There's nobody. The people that made fucking gun smoke <laughs> haven't seen every fucking episode. That was my childhood. I guess like a, there, God, yeah. So, but, but yeah, it, it's God. It, I fucking, I must have suppressed that shit. I should, yeah, fucking gun smoke. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, right after that whole scene that we just discussed, um, Quigley gets you know knocked out from the back of the head by like the redheaded dude that is which, like one which of the is, younger. I looked at it. It's, and fucking Mendelssohn in his earliest fucking role easily that I've ever fucking seen. Uh, you know, um, gray hair now. Him? I yeah. can't imagine him with red hair. I know, I didn't, I would never have recognized him if I hadn't uh, looked it up. It, it's, it's fucking, it's Ben Mendelssohn in like easily the earliest role I've ever seen him in is the ginger <laughs> dude. Yeah, so. I had to look that um, up again. We we forgot to describe right before the big final shootout. We forgot I, I, I we forgot to describe Cora being you know there, he kind of he, he uh, drops her off her, with the like, German people. Yeah, it it really does feel like an ending. Like like I, I mean I didn't actually the they placed so much emphasis on it that I really thought they were sidelining her for the rest of the movie. Like I didn't think she'd come back into play, you know, mm-hmm. like which creates a sort of tension the way they did that because I thought well actually shit maybe Quigley dies right because they they almost wrap that up with Mm -hmm. her right like the the way they send her off really does feel like a finale you know and so everything after that point you do actually think Quigley might die there's a point at the end I I was convinced he was actually going to die so maybe you didn't feel that way but I suppose you've seen it's hard I was like five when I first when I first watched this movie so you know, I was five, so I was kind of like, oh, the good guy's going to win. Red Dead Redemption, uh, the name Marston, and then the way he's surrounded, like everything about that scene reminded me of the end of Red Dead Redemption 1. And I was like, well, wait, shit, this must have actually been an inspiration on some level. And I'm like, if it was an inspiration, Quigley's a dead motherfucker. <laughs> and Sorry, to play Dead, Red Dead Redemption 1, sorry, spoiler, but... Uh, so I actually thought it was going to go that route. 
Um, it doesn't, but you know, but uh, actually maybe this was actually an inspiration because the way that scene is set up, this feels like an alternate ending to Red Dead Redemption. I know a definite a lot of that inspiration in, for that. You see a lot of that with out. like Call of Duty too, or Call of Duty, oh. like any of the Call of Duties. There's references towards movies of the same genre in video games so yeah it definitely wouldn't surprise me oh but but for for sure though for the record i absolutely am goddamn 100 percent that uh the proposition john hillcoats i think it was his first movie uh with uh memento guy pierce uh and mm. uh ray winstone and not emily mortimer i always confuse her we talked about she was in breaking the waves i always get her mixed up with uh, emily, emily watson mortimer. yes uh, she was in that um, absolutely 100 fucking percent Red Dead Redemption was inspired by that movie. So anybody that likes that one, definitely watch John Hillcoat's uh, proposition. Um, okay, so they drag Quigley back to the ranch and they set it up so it's like one versus three for a uh, draw to the death. And yeah, this is when it gets like bonkers, stupid like villain wise where it's like yeah let's just give you let's let's give you a gun quickly you've killed my entire company so far uh i don't think you can That's kill all I three missed, of us. he lets him have the gun like he wasn't concealing it like he lets him have the fucking gun yeah that's kind of okay. no i'm sorry i'm sorry i didn't understand that yeah sorry yeah, well, no. No, I, just, well that's really fucking stupid. Yeah, it's just the movie kind of being dumb there. <laughs> like it's Okay. Um, Commodus had the right idea. Remember Gladiator where Walking Phoenix is comedy? I mean, that was actually true. So Commodus would dull the blades of of you know the gladiators and they go out there and fucking shank them and shed and he'd be like, Yeah, I'm victorious, right? So Commodus mm-hmm. had the right idea, right? Give give don't yeah, don't give quickly any any bullets, I guess. I don't yeah, but yeah. something. Yeah, don't give quickly bullets because he fries all three of them just <laughs> But yeah. yeah, okay, so it's just stupid. Just stupid. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's just stupid. And then the British military come and it's like Quigley just killed like 20 ranchers and yep. you know. He's so all lying around. He's right he, there. He he's he's gonna get arrested or put or whatever, hanged. Like they want they want well, they want to hang him. And then and they uh, proposition they're like, oh we could just shoot you right now. You know, and so you think there might be this final standoff. That's where I thought the Red Dead Redemption thing might come into play. It's almost like an alternate ending where, yeah. you know, John Marston gets to walk away or something. And then probably the, the best... original show up. Yep. And then and then the best so, part of the movie happens for me anyway, when the aboriginals all line up in a big circle around everybody and surround the entire horizon. And specifically yeah. the servant shows up too um yeah he's killed his owner yeah yeah he so, killed his owner like you know it's like you know uh, and, and actually a dumber movie might have totally forgotten about him so i was actually kind of pleasantly surprised that they brought that full circle in a sort of in a sense you that's know? kind of that's kind of the heart of the movie too so like they played their cards right towards the end it's just they fall into some into you know some cliches i think that make it not as good of a movie as it could have been they cut one corner too many when they, you know, and it kind of undermines the quality. So yeah. you do see that happen sometimes. And then overall, kind of like as far as like my nitpicks go, so I don't think the editing was very 
well done in some in some instances like i never thought it was bad it yeah I mean, like it doesn't like i'm talking about kind of like you know the pace and like the music of editing where it's like how like one cut to another it just doesn't bring anything special to the table that's all but it doesn't totally fail it's just average right? yeah it's it's average I do think that in a lot of I do think that a lot of dialogue is not great. I think they're better with the plot lines than some of the dialogue. Part of that too could be me just wanting more Marston, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a big. Oh, sorry, thing. we talked is, about at the very start where it's like he's definitely underutilized. I think, I think um, they didn't know what they had because you said Die Hard was his first film, and then this is his direct follow up. Yeah, so I think he didn't know what they had, and it's a damn fucking shame because he's, you know, Rickman's great. So I I get why they wanted to make him like kind of a coward, but if they made him, you know, hands on enough in his sort of like massacre and genocides, he could have been a more threatening villain. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he, actually, yeah, that. I mean, it'd be, you know, I don't know at what point it becomes a totally different movie, but I, I don't feel like, I mean, they set that up, you know, like there was a really interesting setup where like they killed his mother. And I think most people, if they're being even remotely honest, like forget right and wrong, they killed your fucking mother, you know, like, you're, you know, like I think they could have really followed up on that. I, 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 we talked about that in Die Hard as well, you know, sufficient villain motivation. There was a great foundation for yeah. a villain, you know, like, I mean, so but they don't really follow up on it he's just kind of he just orders people to go get uh uh quickly you know he doesn't we don't see him he orders people to kill the aboriginals we don't see him being very hands-on i don't even think we see him kill an aboriginal person because we see him kill those two we see him kill those two traitors right and like yeah that is what it is but you know he treats them like shit obviously and orders them to be killed but I don't know. Well, so it's it's a hard it's it's a difficult villain to really respect in many ways. Like you well, you don't really respect his intelligence. You don't really respect. Oh yeah, I mean it's a minor point, but with with the deserters, I think I think there's sort of a tension there because you know Quigley says he's come all this way. You know, you promised fifty gold up front, and Rickman pays it to him. But you know, I think like you said, he's distrustful you know, sort of. And then I think when we see Rickman bait the deserters into drawing arms, you know, it shows you what kind of character he is. He's like, well, I see no reason why you should be bound up, you know, and, and you know, I'm civilized and la, 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 you know, and, uh, you know, so yeah, let's take those restraints off. And then the first thing they do is go for the guns of their captor. And then, you know, he himself blows them away. So it does mm-hmm. show that he's, almost manipulative or like he knew the outcome he wanted to make a point you know and uh so i think it's quickly there's sort of that tension that you know that he's you know um if not setting you up he's definitely not being completely forthcoming you know he's he's probably playing you in the same way that he's playing them and then obviously that revelation comes a little earlier where it's like yeah you're not here to shoot animals you're here to shoot aboriginals you know, mm-hmm. and the distinction might be minor for him, but you know, it's everything for Quigley. So you know, uh, but yeah, I agree. And I, I just, I guess my other, my only other like big criticism on it is it doesn't seem overly artistic 
as far as the way it's shot, as far as, you know, it's heart is definitely in the right place where a lot of the plot lines go. And it is, mm-hmm. it does bring like a lot of triumph to triumph to the movie, but uh, like, it's just, it's just not shot or like expert. Summarize that with the final scene with uh, 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 Cora, you know, where, where there's that text. I mean, this kind of manufactured tension about the, the guy, you know, they're like, What's your name? And and for whatever reason, him just saying, What, what is it? I actually didn't write down. Uh, um, he said, He said, Roy. Roy Cobb. So, and he's like, Stop calling me Roy, stop calling me Roy. And then at the very end, he accepts the name Roy Cobb. And then the, the guy, and part of that though, is that Quigley, the name Quigley is a wanted murderer. <laughs> Right, but the, there's but that guy is looking at a wanted poster. Like this guy looks just like fucking Quigley, right? So we see that, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, okay, you're looking at like Quigley's probably not going to use his fucking name, you know? He's probably gonna come up with a made up name. So like, I mean, you're looking at the image of Quigley, and he's like, I'm Roy. And it's like, oh, okay. So like, I mean, like that just was the total difference. Like it totally just, you know, okay. Guess your boy, not Quigley. Okay, so and, and then it ends in a very cheesy freeze frame kiss with Cora. Yeah, that was I mean, very I, of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Actually, you know, ending on a freeze frame, I think, actually, is really great in horror. Like, remember that episode of True Detective where it freezes on him, like in the gas mask in his fucking underwear. Like that was terrifying. So you can yeah. end on a freeze frame. It's, but just it's possible, but sometimes, <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> you have to be a Bayou serial killer, drug dealer. Works better in horror. In your tidy ones. <laughs> like the descent. Uh, yeah, that worked. You know, horror works. Beyond that, yeah. Yeah. Oh. As far as a place in society, I do think that it has some significant, like, winks towards old westerns. But it kind of compromises the story. Um, I don't know. One thing that I thought was interesting was there have not been, especially to this point, there have not been many movies that really attacked. I know there, there's been plenty of movies that have discussed, you know, the plight of Native Americans. Mm. Uh, not many movies, not many American movies that talk about the Aboriginals at all. And even to this point, there had not been many movies about slavery. You had like the TV drama for for Roots, uh, yeah. And then like you know you have like some race movies, but yeah, it took till like Amistad, and that was like '97, I believe. And this was yeah, 90. Awesome. and then and then like you had like Django and Twelve Years a Slave. So it took a while before you even had that. So I wonder how much the aboriginal like storyline is just well american cinema is able to cope with the fact that another country committed atrocities as opposed to us like it might be a very a much harder movie to digest for an american audience to see uh, well you know, a ma- mass amount of Native Americans being pushed off a cliff. No, uh, there, it is interesting because I, I, again, I looked it up. This is American Australian co-production, um, so I don't know if it's a Western or a bushwhacker. 
it's kind of in this difficult position because mm. you know but um uh but anyway um if you want to watch a movie so i guess this is probably where we move into movies like this right i mean probably yeah uh sure. the, the john hillcoats i believe is his first film the proposition uh very it becomes a very violent film it's it's I love that movie, but yeah, Guy Pierce, and this does definitely cover the aboriginals and where, uh, more than that though, I have it here because I'm going to bring it up. Uh, <laughs> this movie will fuck you up. I mean, it's not, I, I, well, you know, you and I are pretty well adjusted, so you'll be fine. But for the <laughs> average person, the Nightingale, um, and this definitely covers, uh, uh, that of uh, you know, the aboriginals and, and, and it's, it's, uh it's it's bad it gets bad it gets oh. really fucking well, bad when was it made uh, when, uh let's see it's recent enough uh it's okay so it's released on blu-ray 2019 so it might have come out in 2018 as a four by three aspect ratio like the lighthouse but it came out before it is okay well whatever if you want to watch and then it just gets better from there so it, it opens up at first it's just a movie about an irish woman I don't want to spoil it, but bad things happen to her, dude, the Brits, and then it opens up. It's not just about her anymore. It's about all the bad things that happened to the aboriginals. About a third of the way into the movie, some of the worst, horrible, awful shit ever happens to her, and then it just gets better from there. It just opens up and becomes a really happy movie about all the happy things that happened in Australia at that time. So, uh, yeah, the, the Nightingale, really, yeah, okay. fun times, enjoy. Uh, there's a lot of talk of, like, the whole white savior thing, and I feel like maybe this is a movie that would get hit with that. I don't... They do kind of call him, like, the spirit warrior, so they kind of deify him a little bit. So I can definitely see that criticism. It doesn't do it as obviously as, a, a like as a lot of other movies like it it's not as guilty of that as a lot of other movies i'd say well yeah so my whole stance on it has has been and i i just feel like i i don't know when the the opportunity to bring it up will be again uh but you know uh i feel like this is something that every culture does and it, it makes the most sense to take somebody from your culture and bring them into a foreign culture and that's how you bridge I mean, because if the objective is to really make people understanding and sympathetic or, or empathetic to another culture and we talked about this with johnny mnemonic kind of the exposition dumps and stuff the best way around that is to take a fish out of water somebody who doesn't understand all this and put them into a different culture and it's just something that i mean you watch i like i watch a lot of foreign cinema they do this all the time so i don't think it's like inherently wrong well this one's not even it remotely the worst perpetrator like it just comes down to how you do it some are eye rolling some aren't yeah know. and and like the big thing about this one too is at the end they save him yeah so like you know and and it's not through any like crazy kind of power that like he would have taught them or like he yeah. like he taught them how to make a how to make like a, a lasso right like yeah that's not groundbreaking stuff like they have their own autonomy in this in this movie like they're not just subjects of the good guy 
They're, but I'm they, glad it wasn't just those few silhouetted because, like, I'm, I'm like, this is five people. We just watched them get masked, but then it expands to like all <laughs> yeah. the whole horizon. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah. You but know. yeah, so they save him. So, as as far as like the white savior criticism, I understand it. I do think there are some movies that are more guilty of that than others, for sure. I think, but like um, you said, I, I think don't think this one is super guilty of it. It does. It does give you some of that though when they're kind of calling him the spirit warrior and it's right. But then it, it subverts it like it doesn't actually follow up on it. So just yeah, I right. just figured in case maybe wants to level that at it. Like I really don't if, think this is a perfect if they went movie. too far yeah. into it and ha- and like had like all the Aboriginal people like bow to him or something, oh, yeah. or show some sort of worship, like he's their god now or something. That right. might be too far, but that also won't work for the movie. So that's why they didn't do it. So I thought it might actually go there, but it didn't. So like, I mean, yeah, it it averts, you know, that trope. So want to start giving it stars. I don't want to affect your star rating. So I'll let you go. I I mean, I I hear that decisiveness is really attractive to the ladies. And uh, I've honored that by totally splitting my review every fucking time between two (laughs) scores. So my first would be hypercritical. This is a 3.5. But if I were to be more generous, it does what it wants to do. It's entertaining. Um, it's exciting where it wants to be, uh, you know, and it mostly works. The, the soundtrack helps that along a lot. Uh, my So a four, but if I was, I think back to when I was a lot more hypercritical, it'd probably be a 3.5. And yours is going to be even lower, surprisingly, by the sound of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's just that, like, I liked it more when I was a kid. I don't know. But yeah. upon this viewing, I'm giving it, you know, like, I'm going to give it three stars. I'll give it better than two and a half. Everybody <laughs> runs into this. Most people just go, I'm not going to do scores. Like, I think scores are valuable. But yeah, it's a bit well, of a problem. Ebert. Ebert's always said that, like, like one of the things that I saw that Ebert did is like, he he likes doing like the star ratings or whatever. He thinks it's, I guess, fun or interesting. But he's like, it's about the context, right? It's exciting enough. It does what it wants. I, like, I feel like it's a four for most people, and that's where I always end up just a, a half score. Yeah, I give it. I give it the one that you'd think. I I give it the one that like you feel. But okay, just the well, way I feel me, is a little mixed because I watched it and liked it more as a kid. Right. So, you know, I have like two competing viewpoints of it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give it three stars because the music was very good. Its heart was mm-hmm. in the right place. There's a lot of good plot lines in this movie. I think one of the big things that takes it down is something that we talked about where it doesn't quite balance the tone shifts. Sometimes it feels like a 1950s era, you know, fun, happy-go-lucky Western. And sometimes it feels border, sometimes it feels borderline Schindler's list and it doesn't quite (laughs) ride those waves. You know what I mean? I mean, well, maybe more like Rickman and more Rickman, more Rickman. Yes. So, I mean, it, um, it sort of dances around the more extreme violence of Schindler's List, but still Ho- Hotel Rwanda's PG-13, but it's the same idea of, like, yeah. really have a subject matter, yeah. you know, yeah. that contrasts with 
yeah, the lighter hard hearted stuff. Yeah, and it's kind of, and sometimes it's kind of hard to warm back up. Although Giacomo does a really good job in her performance, it's kind of sometimes hard to warm back up to her when we're getting into the comedic scenes that go on even later in the movie. And yeah, I do feel like there's that clear halfway point where she kind of spills her beans, so to speak. That revelation is pretty dark. And I think the rest of the movie after that point is pretty dark. And it's hard to go back into the lighter. When I was a kid, I liked the shootout one versus three because that oh, yeah. seemed still kind of exciting, like he might die. And right. I, I mean, you thought he would get, you thought he could have died here. So. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought it was a dive in the British Army showed up. Uh, But I mean, you know, I I didn't fully even understand the one on three shootout because it's just so ludicrous. But I don't know if they were trying to make it more exciting than the the Mexican standoff and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like they're like, what if it's three on on one? You know, like and like it just is kind of ridiculous. I wish Alan Rickman's character was a little more hands-on. I wish they gave him more to do because he could have handled it. Uh, I did like the triumphant ending where the Aboriginals save him. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then the freeze frame is what it is. Uh, <laughs> I guess I, I guess it's kind of funny, but... Um, it's no more abrupt than Johnny Mnemonic. So, you know, like... Oh, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, pick that shit up and then credits. So... <laughs> all right. So that's all we have for you today, folks. I hope everybody has a great day. Uh, Have a good one.